And a very good morning to you. Today on the programme, we're looking at another incident in Loch Ray last evening. Also, a warning has been issued to students of University of Galway about harassments in the ladies' toilets. Today, a Galway woman makes a plea for early intervention for her brother. We're going to Nursing Homes Ireland because we're looking at uh, over 27% of COVID-19 deaths were in nursing homes. That and much more between now and 12 midday. All the comment lines are open today on 086 38 33 55 3 or call us on 091 77. It's Wednesday. Good morning. Very good morning to you. Welcome into today's programme. Well, the people of Loch Ray got another um, startle yesterday evening because last weekend we spoke to our, our first guest indeed uh, in relation to a firebomb attack that took place uh, in uh, Loch Ray. Yesterday evening there was another firebomb. Where is all of this going to end? Another home has been ruined. Another community has been bothered. And there's a, an awful lot of fear in the Loch Ray area as to where this is going to end. I'm joined in studio such as the seriousness of this, by um, Cahirlick of Galway County Council and local councillor, Councillor Mogi Mahar, who joins me. Uh, councillor Mahar, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. Such is the concern today in Loch that you're joining us in studio. What happened um, just before nightfall last night? Yes, Keith, again last night, unfortunately, there was another firebomb in Carrigal in the state. Uh, it happened, this is the third one that has happened. There is um, this kind of violence, throwing petrol bombs into houses, needs to stop before somebody gets seriously hurt or a life is lost. There is, um, I suppose, real fear out there now. Genuine people are really afraid that it may be their home next, mistaken for some other person, I suppose, to be living there. Um, it happened on Monday night when they, the first petrol bomb was thrown. It didn't go through the, the second pane glass window, but they did succeed on Saturday night to ensure that the house, car and trailer was burned. Again, last night, another petrol bomb was throwing. So I'm appealing to whoever is doing this, please stop before a life is lost. There's underlying issues, I do believe, in which we let the Gardaí deal with. We can allude to them and that. But it's only a matter of time because some of the photographs that I've received, houses on either side of the houses in question have been badly uh, damaged with smoke. Uh, it's only a matter of time before somebody gets killed. Now, the firebomb last evening... Was, was it around 6 o'clock-ish? Around 6 o'clock, Keith, yeah, in the second story. Um, so it wasn't the, the targeted the bedroom to make sure that the, that the whole house could go up in smoke. So it went in through the, the bedroom window upstairs? Correct. And that means that the house then is just a write-off from there? Absolutely, Keith. I believe two, at least two of those houses now are damaged. Those families will have to be moved. And we, we know the constraint we're underneath with housing at the moment. Uh, so this needs to stop. It, and are these council-owned houses, do we know? That these know? are council-owned houses, Keith. So again, the council are going to have to pick up the slack on all of this? Absolutely. Out of a budget that's already strained? Absolutely, Keith. You're talking tens of thousands for each of these houses now again. And the community have been in contact with us yesterday. There were three people in contact with us yesterday. Very concerned about the tension that's in Loch Ray currently. Certainly, Keith. I think, you know, this, uh, you can see the social media and the comments up on it. This is just the start of it you are next. So who they're t targeting on this, people are genuinely afraid that a petrol bomb will come into a house sometime at night, the, uh, young children or the elderly won't be able to get out of the house and the life will be lost and it's too late. So I'm, I'm appealing to whoever is doing this, please stop. 
please stop it immediately before somebody gets hurt. There was a reference perhaps that this could be drugs related um, following the Saturday night just gone attack and that that, that uh, home that went up on fire. If it is drugs related, where are the Gardaí on this? I believe the Gardaí are doing all they can, Keith. Uh, they're going around investigating different houses, looking at uh, footage of people buying petrol in the petrol stations. So I think in fairness to the guards, they're doing the best they can. But unfortunately, like every town and village in Ireland at the moment, it is riddled with drugs. And the sooner we get on top of that, and in fairness to the new chief uh, chief super, uh, Jerry Roach, he's targeting drugs. He wants to stamp it out. Uh, at our last JPC meeting, he was saying that is his priority to ensure drugs are got rid of out of our county. Uh, and do you believe that this is drugs related? Or is that a fair question to ask you? I believe so, Keith. I believe so. And I'm appealing to the families involved. Please stop. Please stop throwing petrol bombs. Try and um, sort out whatever... It, damages you have, but please stop the petrol bombing. So whatever issues you have um, about um, whatever is going on, so whatever issues the two families have in question or three families have in question, sit down and sort it out before somebody's killed. Absolutely, Keith. Because, to be honest, what mindset throws a petrol bomb in through a window? I can't understand it, Keith. It's, it was never in Lockray Town. We never had anything like that. It's just getting worse. And, and the stuff on social media needs to stop as well. That's the kind of stuff that, that's annoying people. Uh, really, people are afraid now in their own homes that they might be mistaken for a family and their house targeted. So please, I'm appealing to whoever is doing it, please stop. Um, you'll eventually get caught by the guards anyway, but that might be too late when a life is lost. So mm. please, please stop. You can't be much clearer than that now, can you? No, Keith, I think, I think I got a lot of phone calls since last Monday of people, genuine people saying, God, Muggy, I am afraid in my house now. It could be us next. There are people moving in, renting houses. We don't even know if some of the people living on the street. And it could, we, our house could be targeted mistakenly by that. And I have an elderly person upstairs, won't be able to get them out of the house. So that's the fear that's out there now, Keith. So please, God, they'll, they'll listen. But if there's a turf war out there, let the turf war... Let it be sorted and let the Gardaí do their job from there. But I really and truly hope that, I mean, you were on to me very early this morning about this, uh, just to keep me fully informed, which I appreciate. But I mean, the situation is that you could be on to me tomorrow morning or Friday morning to say somebody died. Absolutely, Keith. And that's, I hope to God that doesn't happen. Um, and I'm, as I said, I'm appealing to those people, please stop the petrol bombing. There's no place for that. That's, please get out of it and just move stop. on. Just stop now at this stage, yeah. Um, okay, we uh, have come, call into the press office uh, from Garth Shikona on that and we're just hoping that a little bit of common sense might prevail uh, from there and that's what you're hoping for as well. Absolutely, Keith, and thanks for the time this morning, Keith. All right, thanks for coming in all the way to join us on that uh, this morning. That's uh, Councillor Mogi Mar on that um, third uh, petrol bomb attack on a home and homes in the Loch Ray and general area. If you have any information on that, I would uh, really and truly suggest you contact um, Loch Ray Guard, the station where they're fully investigated it and they had a very successful find in association with um, Loch Gardaí and Gobla Gardaí uh, two weekends ago when it came to illegal substance uh, that they they confiscated and that's before the courts as well uh, so they're active on the ground but they need eyes and ears on the ground and the eyes and ears on the ground could be you and uh, those that are listening to us uh, today and um, Mugimara thank you for joining us uh, today we're back and we have a story coming out of University of Galway in relation to a gentleman 
who's harassing people in the ladies' toilets. Stay tuned. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie. Very good morning to you. Welcome into today's programme. There I was talking to Councillor Maher and I uh, wasn't, uh, hadn't got the headphones on. Uh, a very good morning to you. Welcome into today's uh, programme. The comment lines are open should you want to get through to us uh, today. We would like to hear from you. You can do so on 0863833553 if you want to get in contact uh, with us. Uh, we sent um, a WhatsApp yesterday um, in relation to in relation to an, an incident that happened uh, within and the um, University College. And um, again, the WhatsApp was basically, um, there was a man in the girls' bathrooms in the college yesterday evening. He started touching my friend and harassing her. It was in the red toilets in the arts uh, building. Uh, Besides Smokey, he's not sure if he's there today. And then it goes on from there. And uh, please watch out and be, be careful of each other. Uh, but I'm joined on the line by Sai uh, Gajul, indeed, who's the president of the Students' Union in the, in the University of Galway. And he joins me on the line today. Sai, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us uh, today. This is, quite a good seri- this is quite a serious incident. And I know that your welfare officer is working on this as well. Um, when did this start happening? When did this come to your attention? So it actually came to our attention yesterday morning, but like it was actually done the day before uh, on the night. So the the person who was uh, affected by this incident uh, came to us yesterday morning and then our welfare officer was able to talk with them and see what the situation was. I mean, it's a genuine, I mean, there's, there's quite a bit on social media that my colleague has given me on this one. Uh, I take it the Gardaí, are the Gardaí on this now and college authorities, I know, are taking this very seriously? Yes, definitely. Like, the, as soon as we found out, the security has been notified and also the Gardaí as well. And the security have agreed to do regular patrols on the campus, which they already have, but they're increasing the patrols as well. And also the community Gardaí have been informed as well, who came to the campus yesterday just to find out what the situation was and how they can um, increase the patrols in the surrounding areas. And can I ask you, again, we have to be very careful on this, um, the, the allegations are, being, are flying left, right and centre on this, um, yeah. but is it thought that the person in question is a student of the college or just using the college? So at the moment, we actually don't have a definite answer on that. Like there has been claims that they are not a student, but also that they are. So at the moment, uh, we're treating it as an incident that we would treat like any other. Mm. So, I mean, the incident happened, as I said to you there, in um, the toilets. That has to be a very frightening incident for anyone. And I mean, there's some other other stuff online, uh, which was the same man followed me around the college yesterday trying to get me uh, to go into the bathrooms uh, with him. He was standing outside the concourse and came up and asked me if I I went to college here and asked me where the biology building was and asked me to show him around because he was a tourist or reported him straight away, uh, but he walked away at the time. And... um, you know, there's there's so many other stories there. Please watch out and take care uh, of each other. And there's also a video doing the rounds of a the alleged person as well. Yes, yeah, like it's a it's really a frightening situation, and we're we're have informed all the different authorities to ensure that this is the case. And also, a few students have set up a group chat, uh, as people might recall during the Newcastle incident, which was also really horrific that has taken place near the campus. So that group chat has been really active in supporting students as well. And we as Students' Union and also the security 
and the Gardaí are trying their best as well to support students during yeah. these times. One of the other messages, uh, Sai, um, which was posted was, uh, girls... And there was a man in the girls' bathroom in the college yesterday evening and he started touching uh, people. Just be very careful. I mean, and the messages just go on from there. Yes, yes, uh, we have come across that as well. And uh, students have been in touch with us as well from yesterday and even the day before. And uh, and our welfare officer has been constantly in touch with them and me even as the president as well. If I received any emails or any issues, uh, I'm always happy to help them as well. So. And I know your welfare officer is is tied up yeah. this morning, supporting yeah. some of the people involved. And that's the type yeah. of support that they need from there because they don't want this harassment in college. And the university yeah. has a very has a very strong name for taking action in this regard. And they have taken yeah. action and are taking action. But this man needs to be picked up and questioned. Yes, definitely. And uh, we have, even the Gardaí have paid a visit yesterday to our union office and we have told the same thing as well to them. So uh, they have even been considering uh, playing clothes, patrolling as well in the nearby areas to catch this person. And uh, there has even been suspicions that it's the same person from the Newcastle incident. So they're investigating it uh, at a full scale to see what the situation is. Was there an incident in Newcastle as well? Uh, yes, in the past, yes. And uh, that's that That was really the origins around uh, the group chat that has been set up by students uh, to go home safely. I wouldn't mind, but I walk, uh, we walk to college grounds quite often and we always comment on how safe it is, be it a Saturday or a Sunday or a Friday evening or otherwise. We always com- comment on how safe it is and how safe it is for students. And we don't want yes. to frighten people, but this person needs to be picked up. Yes, definitely. And uh, and we will try our best as well to find anything that would lead us to this person and catch them immediately. But they're obviously afraid of nobody if they're going around over a couple of days going into bathrooms. Uh, they they yeah. don't they don't see any wrongdoing. They're just they're just harassing people. They there there is certainly there must be some kind of mental illness there uh, that needs to be dealt with. You just don't go into a lady's bathroom like that. Yes, definitely. Like uh, at the moment, like on. Unless we catch the person, we cannot uh, answer the question in relation to their mental health or anything like that. But um, we have informed the security who have been uh, constantly patrolling the area as well. And even yesterday on campus, we saw the security going around in their vans as well near the area. So we hope to catch this person. I please, I, I do hope that um, the person is caught, but I also hope it's sooner rather than later because they're being very persistent about this. And this is not proper behaviour in 2023 as we go into International Women's Day next Wednesday as well. So this is not, this is not normal and this needs to be sorted very quickly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, Saigadula, thank you indeed for joining us. Keep strong, won't you, because you have a difficult week. Uh, but thank you indeed for joining us uh, today on the uh, programme. That's Saigadula joining us there. And our thanks. He's president of the Students' Union in the uh, College. University of Galway are doing everything in their power in this regard as well. And they're working uh, around the clock with their security staff and otherwise uh, to ensure that um, the person in question is caught, if you know anything. Um, again, there's some photographs up online. I ain't going to redistribute them. We're not getting involved uh, in that regard. But um, please, this person needs to be caught and caught fairly quickly. Sarah O'Hara joins me on the line because she's the sister of a man who only recently received an autism diagnosis uh, this year after his family sought help for him for years. He's, and they said that children must get the support uh, that her brother was denied. 
Uh, her brother was uh, 27 years of age when he was diagnosed uh, with autism this year. And Sarah joins you on the line. Sarah, good morning to you. Hi, Keith. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us uh, today. And I know this is a difficult subject, so you're trying to keep it together with me today. But tell me a little bit about your brother and uh, a little bit of background on when he was diagnosed. Yeah, so Alan is 27 years old. Um, and when he was born, he was diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, and as he got older, he started, started displaying a lot of symptoms that we thought maybe um, could be autism. Um, and we raised this with social care workers, but we were told that he wasn't really meeting the criteria for autism. And we accepted it at the time uh, because his behaviours weren't really, I suppose, as out of control as they later became. But then during lockdown, a lot of services were cut and he started displaying more symptoms. And we then realised then that, you know, this has to be autism. And we then decided to try and get an assessment for him. Um, and that maybe took, for the first point of contact, that maybe took about a year. So it was a long time. And why did it take so long, Sarah, can I ask you? Um, well, we, my parents were speaking to the psychologist that came out and we were saying that, you know, at this stage now, he's really not functioning. He has a lot of anxiety, a lot of behavioural issues. Um, and we were told that basically while they wanted to help us, there was just a very, very long waiting list and that a lot of understaffing within the HSE and that that they could try and speed up the process. But there's just such a backlog that there was really nothing they could do. And so the initial diagnosis, yeah, was about a year that we were waiting on it, which is a long time to wait when, in Alan's case, he's not functioning. But the sadness of all of this is that if this was diagnosed when he was younger, um, I mean, whatever, whoever made the diagnosis of Down syndrome, they did so in good faith. But if it was autism, he could have gone a different route altogether rather than living with autism for the, say, 20, 22 years uh, since diagnosis. 100%. He'd have had a different yeah, quality of life, say, with Sarah. Absolutely. You know, I've always said that, Keith, you know, um, he's at the moment, like, he could have had a totally different quality of life. And within intellectual disabilities, in particular autism, early intervention is critical. critical um, yeah. It's the difference between children meeting milestones and then completely missing them and parents being able to cope and not being able to cope. And then in Alan's case, it's the difference between, you know, maybe living relatively normal life but now in his case because he was left for so long you know he my parents are full-time caregivers to him and he needs help with absolutely everything but sarah i'm not being smart here my heart goes out to your, your parents and to you as well but somebody somewhere dropped the ball on this one where alan was concerned where they, they didn't do a uh, didn't do ongoing assessment of some sort i don't mean your parents but i'm talking about medically Somebody dropped the ball somewhere because if they picked up on the autism and we know people and I know personally know people that have uh, mm. autism and they're leading a beautiful life. But now to try at 27 years of age to get Alan into that routine, it might be just a little bit too late for him. Exactly. And it is too late. And that's why I'm speaking up about it. And I know the HSE have said that they have. 91 children's disability network teams around the country but from what I understand those teams are only partially staffed and I think as of now there's 86,000 children on a waiting list so if those teams are only partially staffed then there's 
half of those children are just left waiting and waiting. And, you know, with early intervention, there is a very, very small window. And if that window is missed, then there's the, the services and support, you know, there's not a lot that can be done afterwards. It's a very small window. When you say 86,000 people on a waiting list, are you saying to be assessed? Yeah, that's the report that I read recently. There's 86,000 children waiting um, for all kinds of therapies in the disability sector. And I think speech and language therapy is one of the highest. And that's what my parents were trying to get Alan in the early 2000s. And it actually, they, they couldn't get it. He just didn't really receive it. So 86,000 families are waiting for a brown envelope with an outpatient appointment uh, letter within it in this country as we speak today, according to the report you read. Yeah, 86,000 children for all kinds. And that can be speech therapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, all therapies that are really, really critical for children. And, Mm. you know, as I said earlier, those therapies are the difference between milestones being missed, being parents able to cope and for the quality of life for children themselves. Mm. Um, Tell me a little bit about Alan. He's 27 years of age. Yeah, he's 27. Um, So the way he is at the moment, um, well, I've always said that despite the fact that he was misdiagnosed, that we're one of the lucky ones, he gets um, adult daycare centre five days a week. He gets respite care sent five days a week. Um, Unfortunately, for a lot of families, they don't get anything. And I think maybe um, if you weren't paying attention to the news recently, a lot of families have now spoken up about it. And you might think that it's a recent issue with the total lack of support and services. But from my family's experience, it's been ongoing for decades. Um, Alan couldn't get speech therapy in the early 2000s. We were told to go private. And in a lot of families' case, they're forced to do that. And it limits the waiting time. In my family's case, we just couldn't afford it. And for the ones that can't afford it, they're just left on the public waiting list. And then as a result, them mm. and their children suffer for it. And how are mom and dad doing? Um, they're okay. Um, as I said, they're full-time caregivers. So now that we have the autism diagnosis, we're happy that, you know, what we suspected years ago were kind of confirmed. But... He still has a lot of behavioural issues. Um, he has severe um, behavioural issues, you know, a lot of self-injury. He'll injure himself or he'll even, um, you know, try and throw objects in the house just out of sheer frustration because so much anxiety has built up with him. And we're trying to get him on medication. Like we've tried various medication, but even for medication, there's there's a waiting list. Um, so they're doing their best, but... Yeah, it's, it's difficult but, for them. Mom and dad are still young people if they have a 27-year-old son and we will never ask a lady her age. Uh, but um, And they have you and they have other family. Yeah, well, there's uh, there's actually, um, there's only uh, less, there's just 10 months between myself and my brother. So we're, we're very close in age. There's less than a year between us. So we kind of grew up together. So, but mom and dad are still young, so they are. And they have a life to live as well. And they're entitled mm, to live yeah, life as Yeah, exactly, well. they do. Like, they're at the age now where they should be, so I, I would say probably enjoying retirement, but, you know, Alan, through no fault of his own, is a full-time job, and, you know, they don't, they get, re- he gets great respite care, and he gets great schooling, but then the rest of the time, they 
they monitor him 24-7 and yeah, it, it's difficult for them. And does he sleep at night time, Sarah? He sleeps, yeah, he's always been a great sleeper. So at least they can try and get a, a bit of a night's sleep between the two of them. Exactly, yeah. Um, but even things like, um, I remember even in the mornings um, with the way he's at the moment, just with his anxiety, sometimes, you know, just before the bus comes for him, he could have a, a meltdown out of nowhere and then they have to deal with that and try and calm him down. And it's re- it's just a result of anxiety and behavioural issues that have been built up over the years. You know, when he was a child, we were told that, oh, it's just Down syndrome. He's just severe Down syndrome. Whereas now we know that he has autism. A lot of that would have been just sensory sensory overloads, but we just didn't know it at the time. So there was nothing we could do to help him. Do you know, my heart goes out to Alan because mm. he, he's been living with the diagnosis of he the person. Let's just take him as a person now, 27 years of age. He'd been living with the diagnosis of Down syndrome. And all the time, um, it's been aut- autism. Down syndrome and autism are two separate spectrums, uh, two totally different spectrums that go, one goes one way, the other goes the other way. And now there's some common common ground yeah. in the middle. But like he's, it's nearly like if he's been locked in his own body with the wrong diagnosis uh, for 27 odd years. Exactly. And you can tell that, you know, Alan, unfortunately, like I said in the interview, that families like mine, Um, We spend our whole lives fighting for the bare minimum for basic needs. And because in Alan's case, he can't, he doesn't have the means to communicate like you or I. I'm sure years ago, if he could, he could say, I'm suffering. Please help me. Please get the support that I need. But he just didn't. And then as an outlet, he just used behavioural issues. People might have said he was bold, but it wasn't. It was just he was just completely overwhelmed. And that was his way of asking for help. If anybody said he was bold, they were just being ignorant, to be quite honest, because he has he has the syndrome. Uh, yes, it wasn't diagnosed until he was 27 years of age, but for anybody to comment on anybody else's uh, child or condition is just pure ignorance, so it is, to be quite honest. I've seen it happening, but I think it's pure ignorant, really and truly. Mm. Listen, you're good to talk about it. Um, again, can you lead a, f- a kind of normal life, Sarah? Or do you have to be at home all the time with mom and dad and Alan? Um, no, so I'm lucky I can I can lead a normal life. And sometimes, you know, I, I like to visit them as much as I can because we grew up together. We're very close in age. And from my point of view, um, I want to be the advo- advocate for change. So Alan can't fight for himself, but I think it's very important if you have a sibling with profound additional needs like Alan, that that you fight for them. Mm. Alan would love to fight for himself. He's not in the position. So, yeah, that's why I kind of took this public. I wanted to raise awareness and, you know, it's too late for Alan, um, but it's not too late for other children. Change can can still be enabled for other kids. It's not too late for them. And do you feel guilty when you're not there and do you try and get back off? To, is, is there that guilt within you leaving mom and dad and Alan? Or can you cope with uh, that guilt? Sometimes, yeah, because like we get on really well and I, I do try and come home as often as I can. Um, but, you know, they said to me, you have your own life to, leave, to live. Um, but yeah, no, we, we would be close and, you know, I want the best for him. So I do try. I do try and visit him as much as I can. So if I was the Minister for Health or the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, or if I was um, Stephen Donnelly at this stage and 
Um, you were sitting opposite them and they said, what do you want, Sarah O'Hara? Mm. What would you say well, to them? Well, I, I think really, you know, the HSE and the government need to come together and just examine because the policy that they've been doing, they've been implementing it for years and it's just a failed approach and it results in family suffering. So I know within the HSE, they've said in the past they have issues with recruitment and issues with retention of staff. And, you know, I know a lot of families, um, you know, I've never seen an ad for recruitment within working within the disability sector. And they said they've spent millions, but they're not working. And then they have a retention of staff issue. Um, there is an issue with pay. I know SNAs are historically underpaid more than teachers. And then with therapists as well, I know there's been an issue within the public sector, them not being paid enough. So what happens is therapists then see they'll get more money in the private sector and rightfully they start working in the private sector. And But then that means that families in the public sector have to wait and it's all an understaffing issue. And, yes. and then within the government, um, I think there just needs to be a lot more funding into more areas. I think they just need to come together, both of them, and re-examine the policy. And on the other side, I know um, certainly some people that are working, say in UHG, Merlin Park or uh, Portiuncla, um, that they're getting year-to-year contracts and they have to apply every year uh, to get a contract rather than getting a full-term contract. And they could be posted anywhere. Exactly. They could be posted anywhere. They could be posted to... Donegal, there could be nothing wrong with Donegal or Mayo or anywhere like that. Mm. Uh, but they're in UHG or they're in Port Yonkler, they're in Merlin Park and they're doing the job that they're doing as OTs or whatever they're doing from there and yet have to apply for the job and can be posted anywhere. Well, the, there's, there's, there's no joined up thinking, I'm afraid, uh, in this regard. But exactly. If, but if they took... If and they, it's all... Yeah, it's all been highlighted in the past and but the same... I You know, what I always say is why is a policy that's failing continuing? Even, you know, I was researching speech and language therapy courses, and I think there's probably a high interest in it, but from what I read, there's only 90 places available across the three universities that offer it. So those that are interested in it, that there's no incentive for them to join because there's so limited places on the courses. So I think that's something they could look at as well to maybe up the spaces on courses like that and get more people interested in it. Well, I think what they should do is, I think that the uh, people who are making these decisions should go to Kalimer and get into your mom and dad's shoes for 48 hours and walk the journey with them for 48 hours mm, and then exactly. and then make decisions from there. That's what I would like them to do. And the chances of them doing it are slim and none, to be quite honest. Uh, Sarah O'Hara, you, exactly. keep, you, you keep talking. You're a brilliant advocate, so you are, uh, for your brother, uh, Alan O'Hara. Uh, give my regards to your mum and dad. I hope something happens. I hope you get some traction on something and I hope that Alan can have a quality of life uh, moving forward that he, as a human being, deserves. Sarah, thanks for joining us uh, today in the programme. And, uh, keep, 100%. Keep thanks for having me. Well keep done me. to you. Well done to you. Thank you for joining us uh, today. 9.42. We're back just after these. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Click and Collect allows you to collect your order whenever suits you. 
Hey, very good morning to you. Now, the comment lines are open if you do want to get through to us uh, today. We'd like to hear from you. Let me get rid of one mouse there, if you don't mind. Uh, we need to uh, hear from you today. And the number you can get to us on is 86 38 Hi, Keith. You continue to promote the liberal left loony agenda on your programme. Not once have you uttered and questions against the illegal smuggling of unvetted, unregulated, passport-destroying IP mails being dumped into the communities across Ireland. It's shocking uh, what this government are doing, asking communities to take uh, a risk with these people. Shocking. I will never vote Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael or Sinn Féin or Greens again. So says James. So, during the 10 o'clock news, I'm going to have to Google somewhere. Liberal left loony agenda. So there you go. What do you mean I'm uttered a question about the illegal smuggling of unvetted, unregulated, passport-destroying IP mails? Who's on the loony left side now, I wonder? Anyway, let's move on. An environmental group uh, today will warn the Oireachtas Housing Committee today uh, that it is alarmed at proposed changes to judicial reviews. The Irish Environmental Network, the IEN, will tell the committee that proposed changes in the Planning and Development Bill will restrict access to justice. The bill proposes to limit who can take judicial reviews and the legislation proposes mandatory criteria that must be met for a challenge to be mounted. These criteria include that groups must have a minimum number of members and be up and running for more than a year. And the Department of Housing believes restrictions are necessary to ensure individuals who initiate cases are liable for costs if they lose. Uh, the Green Party ministers, Catherine Martin and Roderick O'Gorman, uh, raised concerns about restricting access to judicial reviews at uh, the Cabinet last year. I'm joined by Senator Pauline Riley. Pauline, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. Would you share their concerns in this regard? And surely, from a civil rights point of view, can you restrict if people want to take a judicial review? I mean, I think that the concern that we'd have is particularly around residents' associations and smaller groups like yeah. that. Um, and and I, I don't believe that you can restrict it from a legal point of view. Um, at the moment, as you said, the Joint Rockets Committee is, is looking at this proposed piece of legislation and there's nothing so far that would persuade us that it is necessary to make these kind of changes. Um, I mean, if you look at it, actually only 3% of planning cases are uh, judicially reviewed and then 80% of that 3% are successful. So it does show that judicial reviews have a function. You know, if if um, planning has legal problems, that these judicial reviews are actually important to point that out. Um, and we don't want to have a clean sweep where people can just get away with bad planning. So, um, look, nothing is set in stone at the moment. The, it's just a draft and the draft is, is going through scrutiny from... Iraqis members at the moment and I met with the Environmental Network myself uh, last night and certainly we would share some concerns but I think I think that we you know we won't see this the kind of sweeping changes that have been um, alluded to last year I'm hopeful that we won't see that but the main thing that we want to make sure is that um, you know people can't come along with a bad planning application and then um, be allowed to just change that midstream if somebody takes a judicial review, because ultimately that would just lead to people putting in nonsense kind of planning applications mm. in the hope that they might be successful and that sure they might get off with it. And if they don't, they'll only have to just go back and make some small amendment 
So uh, that would be the part I think that we'd be most concerned about in, in the Green Party. But when we talk about judicial reviews, we're not talking about a cheap process. So the people that want to take the judicial review have to uh, stamp up quite a significant amount of money in, in, in excess of 100,000 uh, for a judicial review. So uh, limiting it to the way we're talking about it here, trying to limit it that way, um, from our legislation constitution point of view, surely we would be taking away some... Uh, rights that people automatically have because they live in the jurisdiction and if they have the money and they have the the wherewithal to take that judicial review are they not just allowed to do so and let the courts decide? Well, well exactly so we'd have concerns that it doesn't stand up to legal scrutiny and, and indeed like even from European point of view there's the R House Convention which means that people have a right um, to, ha- to have a say in what what happens around them and um, we want to make sure that that they continue to have that right. I think that there has been some narrative there that uh, these judicial reviews are delaying things but it's actually not the case. What's delaying things is that we have um, a planning system that is woefully under-resourced and indeed Mm -hmm. the estimate is that we'd need probably another 800 staff in the planning system and that's across local authorities mainly in order to be able to to move planning applications much faster that's really where the the bot- bottleneck is and um this kind of politicizing of it and saying well just let's stop judicial review it's not going to have the impact that we need it to have so i think it's a shortcut and it's also a stomping all over people's uh, rights to have their say when it comes to what gets planning and what doesn't I suppose that when it comes to judicial reviews, we think of the outer ring road, we think of the major infrastructural pieces that are out there. But the figures that you've given me, 3% out of all mm. planning applications in the country end up in the judicial review. And 80% of the 3% are successful. So it proves that the process is working. Exactly. And actually what we've seen is some changes to the law following some of these judicial reviews. So, um, you know, if it is a case where there are lots of judicial reviews of a particular type of planning application, as we've seen for some kind of housing developments, it it does change it so that then the law is changed because um, it's found that actually there is a legal problem with the process. So, quite apart from the individual cases being successful, it actually serves a really important process in pointing out where there are failures in the system itself. So I don't think there's any need to to mess with that. And, um, you know, I think that people will have different different views on the outer ring road, but um, ultimately you know, we can't be throwing out the baby with the bathwater and think, well, let's just get rid of judicial reviews and everything will be hunky-dory because I just don't, I just don't think that that's, that's a runner. You know, it, like, it's not actually going to have the, have, no. uh, ha- have the kind of um, remedy that we hope it'll have on the planning system in general. The, um, it's, as one of my colleagues said to me before we come on air today, it's not like if you wake up in the morning time and said, I'm going to bring a judicial review. It doesn't work like that. I mean, it's it's not just a light bulb moment that you make a decision and you do it. I mean, there's structures that have to be followed. There's legal structures that have to be followed. And as I said, Absolutely. there's financial consequences as well. And with the figures that you're talking about, we're talking about, we're talking about low figures, but successful figures when they're taken. Yeah, and even at even at the very outset, um, a judge will look at do you have a do you have a case that could possibly be successful before you're even allowed to take the case. So 
there are all of those things in in train already and so the it, it isn't as if nonsense cases with no merit can move forward they can't and as you say there is a lot of legal jeopardy for people who take these cases mm. and they do it because they feel really um you know either aggrieved or they feel that they uh, you know that that the planning process isn't working and they want to highlight that um I, I certainly have an awful lot of time for people who do go through that process because it eventually makes it the planning system better for all of us. And ultimately, we all live in the built environment as well as the natural environment. We have to make sure that it's fit for purpose um, and that it's making our lives better. And so I, I think that the process is working. Um, and so we would have concerns if it's going to be changed dramatically. All right, uh, Central Poland Riley, thanks for joining. You haven't been called a liberal left loony today like I have, so... Uh Oh, well, that's that's my that's my usual day, daily. Um, um, I have to I have to get the definition. But anyway, I, I'm glad you're joining me there. Keith. <laughs> I want to get the definition of it, uh, Central Polly and Riley. Thank you for joining us uh, today. So now I'm a liberal left loony agenda. Yeah, we'll figure that one out soon. Well, now, Irish Water and Galway County Council Water Services wish to advise residents and businesses in Barna that they will be without a supply of water today, Wednesday, 1st of March, from approximately 9am until 2pm to facilitate repair uh, works at the Water Mains network there. The area affected is from Furrymuila East to Craigon, uh, so that's the general area there. Galway County Council, working in partnership with Irish Water, regrets any inconvenience that may be caused uh, by the emergency works there as well. So again, that area is from Furimuila East to Cregan is what you're looking at uh, from there. Uh, Keith, I heard your interview yesterday with Deputy Nocton in relation to who we will certainly miss for his continuous support for the vaccine trials um, as well. Um, but uh, you asked about married mothers being in mother and baby homes. The confusion is around the list of homes included. Only 14 are actual mother and baby homes and the remaining 30 homes are county homes. And those county homes admitted people requiring assistance of all ages and conditions, including um, married women. County homes were around the county from the foundation of the state in 1922. Uh, we'll come back to that, though, later uh, in the week as well. On the other side, though, some of the comments coming in to us uh, today. Uh, if the person is going into a female bathroom, uh, can you tell us what nationality? I'm not even going there with you. Me being a, a loony agenda. Liber, what am I again? Lib, liberal left loony agenda. I'm not going there. Ask Mogi Maher why they got rid of a superintendent in Loch Ray. And other calls coming in too. Um, did you ever find the owner of the set of Skoda keys that were found in the Bank of Ireland in the city and were handed into the radio station? Just wondering, this caller wants to know. And uh, can you give a big thank you to the Gardaí who found my mother last Friday after she went missing? I really appreciate that, Keith. I think we did that earlier, didn't we? I think we did that earlier uh, in the week as well. Yet to come, though, on today's programme, coming from the Liberal Left Looney, who's on air today, uh, we're going to go to... What did you say to me? Talk to me. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tyg Daly, uh, CEO of Nursing Homes Ireland, joins us, where 27% of COVID-19 deaths were in nursing homes. And uh, I know some staff members are very concerned about that. Uh, today, we're looking at that on today's programme. Paul Carl, who's a consultant... Uh, General Surgeon joins us and we're looking at uh, cancer there so stay tuned for that and blockages that happen uh, along the way there and also a Galway woman is producing uh, Daring Dames 
Europe's only all-female circus festival in Ackle this weekend. Uh, so we'll be going to that too on the uh, programme. We're also looking at Eating Disorders Awareness Week as well. And uh, Dr. Tony O'Connor joins us uh, on that from St. Patrick's Institution. So if you want to get questions into that, you can do so. Uh, to our comment line today, 086 Or you can call us on, uh, with thanks to Rational Windows, or call us on 091-77-0077 today. Now let's head towards the Galway BFM News Desk for the 10 o'clock news. We're back just after that. We'll be looking at those nursing home deaths during COVID-19. That and more to come between now and the end of today's programme. All the lines are open. They're your lines. They ain't my lines. They're yours. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie. 